So I don't know how it is in your lives, but in my life, whenever I invite an acquaintance or a friend into my car or in my house, there's this little ritual that goes something like this. When they come into the car or through the front door of my house, I almost always say, I'm so sorry about the mess. <laughs> right? And then if I'm in my car, okay, so I'm talking to some people who have this experience. In my car, I kind of do this frantic scramble to get the granola wrappers and the old receipts and the winter gloves and hats and library books and like make a little pile so their feet can fit in the car or if they come in my house there's this moment of like well that's peculiar there's a mess i was just about to clean this mess up <laughs> normally you wouldn't see this but this one time there's uh we were just getting to that it is a weird ritual is it not? I can tell I'm talking to, like, you do this too, all right, with your, if you have a car or a home or a space you live. And the funny thing is, here's the really funny thing, and you do this too, I bet on it, when other people come into, um, excuse me, when you walk into someone else's house or their car and they do that thing where they're like, sorry about the mess, you're like, hey, no worries. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You, expect, you extend a little bit of grace to them. You're like, I get it. Like, my house is messy too. No worries. But the funny, crazy thing about this is it symbolizes something pretty significant in our lives, a vision of what we wish maybe was in our lives. There's a sense that we're supposed to have it all together. We imagine this judger or this checker or some overseer person thing that's kind of watching our lives, and there's a sense that our car, these are symbols for our lives, our car or our house should be really clean and orderly and organized. Our living spaces, our very lives. On some level, I think, we dream of a sanitized, clean, Febreze, fresh life. Hmm. But life is just plain messy most of the time. It is uncertain and chaotic and unpredictable. We can organize and plan and coordinate and buy little knick-knack things at Ikea and get all crazy coordinated. Keep the chaos at bay for a moment, but then it comes right back into our lives. Despite the illusions of control and orderness that we live with, life is most often a beautiful mess. I am keenly aware of this. Any day now, as many of you know, we're expecting a child. Our son Tucker will have a baby brother. And crossing the threshold from womb to first breath is messy, often filled with moaning and groaning and crying, either from the one giving birth or the birth partner, <laughs> or everyone, everyone in that space. And then after that, raising children is messy, hard work, beautiful work. Our expectations are constantly shredded and reimagined and recreated and shredded again as we have to face who and what our child is not who we want our child to be. We'd like our children to be kind little peacemakers and to never hint at the possibility of violence or destruction that lies in every human heart. We'd like our child to say to the other sixes and sevens, not, we could easily kill a two-year-old, <laughs> but rather, oh, let's love up on that two-year-old and invite that two-year-old to play with us. We would love that. But life is a paradoxical mess. 
and wanting to have children and being unable to, well, that can be emotionally and spiritually and financially messy as well. And even if you don't want children or never had children, you get to join the great human family in all the messiness of feeling and naming the emotions that come with being alive, grief and despair, fear and joy, wonder and gratitude. The whole darn enterprise from birth to death is messy, including especially often those last breaths of our life. Every bit of it, messy. And church is not exempt from the mess. It was beautifully, in one way, beautifully exemplified this morning, right? A couple of miscues and trying to take us into the cycle of life. And like, wait a second, we have a beautiful song. We're just modeling up here the fact that life is messy. (laughs) And church is not exempt from that mess, which can create some very holy tension, a place to grow your spirits, if you will. It can create some holy messiness, if you will. We come in here, maybe the same ideas for our cars, if we have a car or our living spaces, like we would like it to be clean and organized and orderly and tidied up, kind of perfect, if you will. We'd like church, like those spaces, to just be set and to fill our needs and to affirm what we believe and kind of comfort us. Sometimes we come in with those hopes. But spirit doesn't work like that. Spirit calls us into mess because the mess is where we grow, whether it's in our faith or in our relationships or in our parenting. So let me talk about the messiness of church for just a moment and then some broader applications for how to live with mess. Beautiful mess. I'm not using mess as a a pejorative here. It's just messy. Two and a half years ago, our faith called us into a journey to learn about race and racism and whiteness. Talking about race, what I have learned in that time is talking about race, especially for white people, especially when it involves talking about our own racial identity as white people, it is messy. It is messy. Many of us who are white are taught not to think about race, much less see our own race or begin to interrogate our own racial identity. And talking about it, hearing about it, can bring up all kinds of feelings of confusion and anger and resentment and anxiety and wonder and curiosity and a sense of, whoa, there's some worlds I haven't seen here. All of that's mixed up and there's some befuddlement in there too. This is what we're in the midst of as a church. It's a holy mess which can be hard to handle. In the past few years, there have been some people, just a few in the church, who have left the church, who have told me they're thinking about leaving the church because there's too much talk about race, or because they're feeling guilty or ashamed about being white. And if this describes you, I mean this in all sincerity, I would love to talk with you because I want to have a conversation. My intention is never to preach guilt or shame. It is to preach a message of shared liberation. Because the racial constructs we live within hurt and wound all of us. And what's worth pointing out also is that not a single person of color in this church has said to me, Hey, Reverend Justin, you're talking about race too much. Not one. And the reason, I suspect, is that race is in the air we breathe. It's in the institutions that we're a part of. It's in every waking moment of our lives. Talking about it doesn't make it worse. 
It simply begins to name what's happening all around us. What's true also in this messiness is that dozens and dozens of new members are joining this church, and many longtime members are reinvigorated in their life of faith here because we are linking racial justice and our spiritual lives. So we're excited, confused, unsure what our role is exactly in this work. In short, it's messy. It's messy. We are crossing a threshold from silence to naming as we sustain this conversation about race and racism and whiteness and begin to act for racial justice. In all of this, it's worth remembering that the systems and structures of racial oppression were built up over 400 years. We're not going to transform that in two years. It's kind of like a 12-step program, and I know many of you work your 12-step programs. You don't just go to one or two meetings or maybe three and say, hey, I've got this. <laughs> it's a lifetime of messy, hard, heart work coming again and again to those meetings, to working the program. But it is worthy work, and the racial justice work is central to our faith. And it is a radical shift in the life of our congregation. Those of you who were here last week remember I had some words to say about those times when shifts happen in our lives, when the ground buckles and shakes, when the world we had imagined or the dreams we had created, when those dissolve, when someone we love passes away, when a dream ends, those moments of shift. Those kinds of shifts, are, whether they're personal or communal, can be deeply, deeply unsettling. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, those shifts and how we might respond, whether it's racial justice in our church community or shifts in our personal lives. There was an interview in the Sun magazine that I read um, not too long ago. A congregant actually shared this with me. So I do read what you send me, you all, but it might take months before I get to it. But I do read it. It was this beautiful, powerful interview with the psychotherapist uh, and, and author, this woman named Miriam Greenspan. And she had this exchange with the interviewer. The interviewer says to her, I think we all want to believe that if we do things right, if we do racial justice work right, if we live right, if we eat right, follow the right diet, if we have the right spiritual practice, if we choose the right mode of living, we will be protected somehow from the shifts, the calamities of life. The interviewer goes on to say, I know a number of people who are shocked and hurt to find themselves in the midst of a breakdown, some kind of shift in their life, even after having done everything right. And then Miriam Greenspan responds, yes, she says, this is a particularly American mindset, this notion that if we get it all right, we won't suffer at all. When something painful happens, she says, we feel that we are no good, that we have failed at achieving a good life. We want to believe there is something we could have done that would have guaranteed a positive outcome and have kept us safe. It's an illusion, of course. This idea that following the rules will keep us safe and secure and will keep the messiness of life away at arm's length. And so this morning, today, as we think about mothering and all of the various ways that mothering can happen, and about living in this messy world, and this messy church, 
I want to draw on the wisdom of Miriam Greenspan and share some practices with you all that we can use to deal with the heartbreak and the suffering and the uncertainty that these shifts can bring in our lives. Greenspan advocates these three practices. When there's grief or anger or despair in our lives, she invites us to do these three things. She invites us to attend, to befriend, and to surrender. So attending first. Attend, befriend, and surrender. Attending. Attending, according to Greenspan, means showing up and being mindful of your body and cultivating the ability to listen to the emotional language of the body without judgment or suppression. Attending means being present to what you are feeling and noticing in your body. And think about this for just half a second. Think how often, I do this so I know you do this, you run from that moment when you're having a conversation with someone, when someone says something and there's a spike of grief or a spike of, oh, defensiveness or whatever it is. And they kind of see it like, hey, are you all right? And you're like, you have that moment of attending or, hey, I'm fine. Or it's, it's not a big deal. It's just something at work. It's something else. It means being present to what you are feeling and noticing in your body. That was a sweet tune over there. <laughs> I don't know whose cell phone that was. That was great. Attending, well, here's the other thing I want to say. Attending to our emotional life for us as, as mostly Westerners is not something we're particularly good at. We're very good at thinking about things, at intellectualizing things, at having ideas and relating to our ideas, but tending to our emotional lives puts us in a, in a thicket of sorts. Greenspan suggests that in the midst of these shifts in our lives, attending to the body's emotional response, language, matters. Naming what's happening matters. After you are aware of what you're feeling, befriending it is the next step. So attending first. What is going on? What am I noticing? And then befriending. Greenspan says befriending follows from focusing our attention and then takes it a step further. It involves building our tolerance for distressing emotions. It involves getting closer to those distressing emotions. She explains in this beautiful, beautiful story, she says, when I was giving birth to my first child, my midwife said something that has stood me in good stead ever since. She said, when you feel the contraction coming and you want to back away from it, move toward it instead. She continues, the feeling in the body that we want to run away from, that's precisely what we need to stay with. A simple way to do this is to locate the emotion in the body and breathe through it without trying to change it or end it. To locate the emotion in your body and just breathe through it. In my own parenting and in many of my relationships, I am learning to befriend the crazy emotions that get triggered in me. Are you with me, parents? Are you with me, people in relationship with another human being? Like, stuff gets triggered. And so part of this befriending process is a sort of leaning in of like, just for me, it involves the talking out loud. Like, I am feeling defensive. You are right. I am defensive right now. I'm feeling very attacked and whatever it might be. And naming that out 
Because if I don't, there's this accumulation of those experiences that shut me down. Leaning toward those experiences we'd like to run from. Attending, befriending, and then the third practice, surrendering. And, and surrendering is the spiritual part of this process. Surrendering is the last thing that many of us want to do, but it brings wisdom and compassion and courage. Surrendering is about saying yes when we want to say no. It is the yes of acceptance. And that, says Greenspan, is what really allows the alchemy, the transformation to happen. We don't let go of emotions. We let go of ego in the surrendering. And then the emotions let go themselves. Consciously experience the energy of those emotions flow towards healing and harmony. Surrendering. Surrendering to what is, right? The shift has happened. You lost the job. A dear friend or loved one has died. Attend and befriend and surrender. Greenspan says, I have found that unimpeded grief transforms itself into heightened gratitude, that consciously experiencing fear expands our ability to feel joy, and that being mindful of despair, really entering into the dark night of the soul with the light of awareness, that renews and deepens our faith. These words, this whole interview, it really spoke to me deeply because we are in a time of incredible shifts all, all around us, tremendous, a time of great unease and anxiety, a time of planetary peril and extraordinary messiness. And so when shift happens, and for many of us, it's happening right now. I know when you walk into these pews, you walk in here with all kinds of stuff going on in your lives. We want to know if there is gold in that dung heap of shift. <laughs> or, or if we should just collapse, <laughs> if we should just collapse into fear and despair. Get what we can, have our little safety and then just bunker down. In parenting, in relationships, in church life, in life itself, if we are going to discover the gold in the messiness, if we are going to be able to listen to where love is calling us next, we must attend and befriend and surrender to the very stuff, the very fear, the very despair, the very grief that we want to run away from. We must practice being with, leaning into, and ultimately letting go. This is profoundly spiritual work, friends, to cross a threshold into a place where we can let our emotions rest in the space we have built for them and then let them pass through us to surpass us. And we don't just do it once in our lifetime. We don't just have this experience of attending and befriending and surrendering once and say, oh, I've got this. The experience the process, the invitation is to do it again and again until we take our last breath. So may you step into such places, attending and befriending and surrendering. May you turn grief into gratitude, fear into joy. May you know that you are loved and worthy and wanted and whole. May you know you are held 
by a boundless love. Amen.